You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome to another episode of Marketing News Canada. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs, and I am thrilled to introduce you to Sabah. He's got over 30 years of experience, creative leader, entrepreneur, business strategist. He is the chief creative officer at Cassette, and he leads the agency's creative output nationally. Sabah, let's jump right in. Tell me, to get to this place, it's kind of like you meet students sometimes in marketing schools, and they're like, my dream one day is to be a creative officer at a large agency. And you've achieved that goal, that dream for a lot of people. Tell us about the journey to get there and kind of the highlights along the way. So the dream was always to be an entrepreneur. Okay. And the path there was creativity. So I did become in marketing with a minor in entrepreneurship long before startups were cool. And as I got to the end of the program, I didn't like the kinds of marketing jobs in terms of CPG and product marketing. And I ended up in a conversation with one of my integrated marketing profs at Concordia, Harold Simpkins. And he knew that I had these sort of creative endeavors, but I'm in business, I'm in marketing. And he opened up this discussion about, you know, you can actually do both. And he sent me to see some of his creative peers in advertising and photography. And so that tipped me over into going to design school, because now I realized that you could study such a thing to become a more creative person. So you have a BCom and you come out with a design degree and I did them back to back. And so that defined everything in terms of I can walk into most meetings and decide to have a marketing or strategy hat on or a creative hat on, which I think becomes the good setup for what could you find in a chief creative officer who can liaise with both sides. Wow. It's like you're speaking two different languages, but mixing them together. Yeah. It's incredible. So big shout out to great profs. Let's just stop for a moment and just be grateful. Yeah. Who didn't just sit to teach, but they actually opened up their Rolodex and introduced you to people. Tell us about what that was like. So he was, Professor Simkins was just very generous, just Hmm. realizing that you can do something different. So he didn't hesitate to just say, I want you to go and speak to my friend or this person. And so it was a direct intro. And I would just go and camp out in these places for a couple of hours and started to realize how different arms of the creative industries work together, but it still all falls under the marketing umbrella. So you realize, oh no, this actually does work together. And just because I studied marketing, it's cumulative in terms of what I was able to do. And so it was a very natural thing for me to do. And most people said, what, you're going to go back to school for another four years. So I would say this is a long haul. And then in design school, you learn a kind of confidence about how to deal with a blank page. So when I think about how none of us are ever intimidated by, well, we're going to start off from nothing. And you know that at some point down the road, you're going to present something and you have no idea what you're going to do, but it doesn't change your confidence in how you go about doing it. So you learn a method around iteration and creativity saying, "Eh, I can come up with a hundred things and then I'm going to pick one. And that ability to come up with a hundred things is this thing that you get trained on that becomes invaluable. It's incredible. And from there, where did it look like? Because kind of the world was your oyster, right? Do you start your own thing? Do you go join a shop? What did you do after that? 
So finished school in May and had a handful of job offers. And I had taken scholarship money all the way through and I turned down every job. And in September, I opened up my first firm. (laughs) You know, I'd been in school for eight years and I was 26 years old before I did anything. So I said, I'm going to rely on the fact that I have business training. I think and act and behave as an entrepreneur. I'd always had little startups and little companies and little things. And so I went for it and opened up a design firm. And at the time, with all the hoopla around Generation X, companies were wondering how to deal with this new generation. And here's someone who's smack in the middle of Generation X. And, oh, you're a business guy and a creative guy. So they're interested in talking to you because... They can explain the problem quite openly, but there's an understanding that if you solve it, then you go and build it because you are a designer or you are a creative director. So this continuity really helped. And I started landing amazing projects just from being able to bridge between the business and marketing and the creative and design world. And so that went zipping along. And are you in Montreal at this time or did you set up in Toronto? Where did you set up shop? I was in Toronto. So I'd moved to Toronto to study at OCAD and I decided not to go back. I said, you know, there's something about Toronto that had more momentum in terms of I can walk in and do a pitch and I can be an absolute stranger and I think I can land the pitch. And so those instincts in terms of which would be the better market for me to build some velocity to pitch bigger pitches. And yes, I was bilingual when I left Quebec, but I was still stronger in English. So I went to, you know, play to my strong suit. And the only thing I did change though was at some point, because I had a firm that had the word design in it, Yeah, I found that people would sometimes just assume that, oh, just make something look pretty. And I felt that they would bring you in too late. Yeah, And so at one point we changed the name of the company from Boom Design and we just called it X Corporation. And when people said, why do you call it X Corporation? I said, ah, we just want the X to be anything we want it to be. And I think that doubled our revenue in a year because people would not have a closed assumption about design, which sometimes is commodified, yes. and they would bring you in to solve a problem. And that solving of net new problems is what got me into doing mostly launches. That's been most of my career is how do you launch something new to an audience? And that is what I love to do most. And I know I'm not going to say ask who your favorite was, but maybe give a highlight of maybe a brand or a product you launched that you want to highlight or talk about. It's hard to beat the launch of the Toronto Raptors. So it's, you know, one of the most successful launches of an expansion team, Canada's first basketball team, and you're launching basketball in a hockey town. So you had to really think about what's going to get in under the skin. And we got a wide, wide range of things to execute. So I designed uh, with my team, the Air Canada plane, the outdoor, the radio, the season tickets, which we designed as collector's items. You get to do something once, you get to do something first. People coveted the season tickets and we designed them. You know, it seems normal now, but we designed them like backstage passes. And so people felt like they got something valuable for that inaugural game and then for that season one. So it's hard to beat that in terms of um, launching something net new. That's amazing. Now, a question on that one. Was Aubrey Graham, our favorite Degrassi High star, a fan from day one? Was he involved like from the get-go or did he come a little bit later? No, no. He came on much later, 
really? much later. Okay. Um, so yeah, and he wasn't known. Remember, this is twenty five years oh, yeah. ago. Oh yeah, he's wheels, man. He's so a Degrassi. He's high Degrassi star. and has nothing to do with it. And <laughs> it was really about you know we had a lot of unknowns. So you'll remember the name Damon Stoudemire, who was very short. That was our marquee player in the first year, but then there was turnover and, you know, so no one knew who the players were. So we built a campaign without any marquee players because it was also a strike. We weren't allowed, when we were creating the actual campaign, we couldn't use actual NBA players. So we used college and high school players that we could find, you know, Toronto obviously has a lot of talent and we built it around them and they looked real. They felt real. That's amazing. And then the super fan, I get came along later down the road. Like, like later. It, oh, yeah. Okay. Later. Wow. But look at the foundation you built. Yeah, I have to say it, it set the stage for, you know, a net new brand in sports and entertainment. And remember, there were things like how the Raptors dancers was a very different hip hop vibe. So we would watch how that was being built. And we said, you know what, we can pick up on some of that energy. We had to build something confident and fierce. So the Air Canada plane looked like a war plane. <laughs> like, you know, you'd go to the airport and people would all press against the window to look at that plane. And like, yeah, that was cool. So you got to build something fierce because that's the sort of startup energy a scrappy team needed to have. And of course, we're lucky that we had a dinosaur, a little scrappy raptor during dinosaur mania. So we had some things to work with that gave us room to have that kind of aggression in the brand. That's incredible. And from there, you've you got your own shop, you've got your staff. How do you go from there to working for another, like a cassette? What's, what's that transition? And you've launched a couple other projects along the way, like your stuff with video, your stuff with investors, like that stuff's genius. Yeah, it's been a, a mishmash of things. But, you know, I have some friends who joke that, Spy, you never really change companies. You just keep adding the next thing onto the last thing. And in a funny way, it's true because there's a, there's a line that I can thread through in terms of the other things I built. So, you know, I co-founded a one-minute film festival every now and then depending on what surges on the one-minute films, sometimes we're the biggest in the world because a million people watch something. You know, it, it comes and goes. But that's what taught me how to, to build campaigns in several countries at a time simultaneously. It also taught me how to use digital media and social media. So if we had a collection of films on the shortlist and I had to create something for the festival that would market us in China, Colombia, Spain, and Romania and Canada we would do it. So I don't even think about that. And by the time social media came along, I was like, oh no, I know how to do that. I know how to work with short bits of stories and short bits of media. And uh, eventually, you know, when the other startup that I'm still currently building and launching is Wealthy Works Daily. It's a financial services firm building and opening investment accounts for kids, but it's bolting on a media engine to a financial service saying, how do you create continuous marketing around financial literacy? And bolt that on. So when I come into a place like Cassette, which, you know, in the holding company, there are lots of entrepreneurs. So they weren't too phased about, hey, can I do this and this? And so I bring in insights around continuous marketing and content marketing and narrative continuity for brands. I gain massive data and analytics teams, one-to-one -one and CRM marketing teams, and just brute strength. And I couldn't imagine 
having a better opportunity to bring that to clients, but also for my investors and the startup to really gain some, you know, brute strength to go alongside with the launch. It's amazing. Now, those that are listening and watching that haven't heard of the concept of holding companies and understand kind of cassettes, kind of relationship with others, can you kind of break that kind of a summary of what that is? So Plus Company is the holding company. And essentially, it's a network of, we have 20 companies uh, spread out in 14 countries. And they cover different kinds of strengths. So some of them are media, some of them are PR, some of them are very digital or design focused, customer experience focused. And so Cassette is a very large piece of the machine, but I get to collaborate. I get to work with unique combinations with other kinds of companies in our network. So it's not unusual for me to call, you know, one of the companies in the Middle East or Europe, which might have a different way of marketing financial services or telco category. And I'm able to learn and mash things up together in terms of what worked there that isn't here. Or if you've got a platform that we haven't used, maybe we can collaborate on something. So there's a lot of agile entrepreneurial collaboration that's only just now starting to be tested out. And so I feel like I have a very wide array of tools and collaborators to work with. Correct me if I'm wrong. Citizen, which is the PR agency, they're, I guess, in your holding company, I think. Yes. Okay, so yes. They be, like, would you call them like, like a cousin? Are they like... Kind of like a friend. Yeah, sister company. <laughs> sister, okay, okay, great. I was like, yeah, we use and the term sister. Okay. When I say it's still very entrepreneurial, it's not as if you're siloed into competing silos. No, not at all. I can literally pick up the phone and, you know, I don't know them. Some of so, you know, I'm, I'm still new and I introduce myself and we're related. I'm like, can you tell me what you think about this? And so they get excited. And so this is where some of the new collaborations have started. And we're now sometimes combined teams in pitches. So we get to walk in with a fresh point of view and it's like, no, we're not faking it. These guys are good at this. We're good at that. This is what we've done together. Here's what we've come up with. You feel fresh. Yeah. That's amazing. So, okay, I'm going to throw something at you. So I've read your stuff on kind of getting creativity everywhere and, and kind of infusing stuff with creativity. And I'm going to use an example, like say someone's listening and they've got a client that just won't listen, wants to do what every other person does. They're kind of stuck in that mold. How have you, and I know Cassette, you're the AOR for like the federal government, right? So I don't know if that could be an example of like doing stuff where you pitch something to them, but they're like, no, we got to keep it safe. We got to keep it simple. Okay. Like, yeah. So... Because I've spent most of my career launching things, I often have to sell innovation. And in keeping yourself up to speed, you sometimes go wandering into pretty creative spaces in terms of use of technology, and you see and touch and try some pretty bleeding-edge things. Those bleeding-edge things are there to enhance your creativity, but they don't belong in most campaigns because they're too risky. So when I think of some of my first touches with AR, VR, AI years ago, they were pretty weird and obscure, but they're not reasonable for a big, stable brand. So often everyone says, oh, how did you get away with that? And I say, well, I pretty much only sell reasonable innovation. I will learn everything I can at the edge, but I figure out what's realistic and palatable for the consumer 
who needs reliability and stability, but so do the marketing managers and the executive team. So I find that bridge between what's new but stable enough and often very digital, just in terms of that's been most of my orientation, but it's understanding what goes too far that is not useful. Startup land is risky. Brands are really not about risk, but you can still bring a lot of innovation to bear. Hmm. That's good. That's good advice. Do you get to sit in on the CRA stuff or like the government stuff of Canada? I haven't on any government stuff. Like there's different government projects <laughs> yeah, 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 on yeah, at yeah. any given point. Of course. And, of course. you know, there are hundreds of assignments and I haven't even gotten to all the clients yet. Um, so I'm going to wait for something. I'm going to wait and I'll see it in the, the <laughs> billboard. I'll see something and be like, oh yeah, man, that was Sabah. That was Sabah's work. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's no, a cool some... tax campaign or something. I don't know. No, there was really good work done for the Quebec government, for instance, just in terms of around COVID and coming up with a communication strategy. And, you know, that was done before I got here, but I loved some of the work in terms of, you know, there's a narrative flow and a way of telling stories that's different in my Quebec teams than my English teams. And so I find, you know what, let's bring some of that vibe over to other things that we're doing. So it was pretty cool for government work. Yeah. Like very cool for government work. Amazing. It's amazing. I'm talking, there's a Vancouver actor, Ryan Reynolds that switched and, and I think he's still acting, but he started an ad agency, Maximum Effort. And then when he was doing it, he realized, man, this is a very, very white industry. Everyone around me looks the same. We all talk the same. And so he was uh, kind of put off by that, being he's from Vancouver. So he um, started a thing called Creative Ladder, the ad industry. He did also for the film industry as well, but he's hired a few folks put a bunch of money into it. So they did a survey recently and they said, what, and, and the, from the survey and the data, they found the reason that there isn't diverse people in the ad industry in America was because teenagers while in high school who are from diverse communities did not know that was an option. And so their next campaign they're doing is going to be about educating high school students from diverse backgrounds that this is an option. So how did you end up doing it? Like, so curious, what, yeah. what your journey? Zero, zero role models. Yeah. Just sort of had decided that, yeah, didn't know anyone in the industry. When I got to design school, barely any of us in design school. And um, just remember seeing one or two people in the industry, but, you know, really no connection to anyone. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to do my thing. What probably made it easier for me was I didn't have to fit into any hierarchy. I left school and I said, I'm starting my own firm. So I'm creative director from day one. I hire who I want. Diversity is an automatic assumption for me. I bring in my people to do this and that. And so we just had a different makeup of team right from the beginning. And I think that made it easier because I just decided how I was going to run something. I think if you had to go through the traditional route, just like any other industry where you're going to face barriers, representation, anything that's systemic that exists as a barrier, I never had to do that. So when I get to a company like Cassette, the opportunity is how do you maintain that continuity of what I am used to and what becomes the norm. And so what happened was when they announced my position, I was literally flooded with requests and inquiries and curiosity from creative people in many countries. People couldn't believe, like, you're chief creative officer. And I heard from Nigeria and Sweden and Americans and People just weighed in, and that has turned into different people wanting to work here. Not just from a diverse representation point of view, 
but I am now contacted by a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people saying, so you wear two hats. You're one of us, but you're aligned with a machine that anyone would envy. So I'm in discussions with a lot of entrepreneurs who are very interested in collaborating, bringing innovation. Some of the discussions we're having on the data analytics and technology front, I think they're bringing to me astounding things that would not have landed in here because they're saying, can we talk about this with you early before we're ready? Sometimes they're still at the bleeding edge, but I'm seeing things coming in the horizon from what entrepreneurs are working on that we may not see two or three years from now. But I start to see these different horizons and that's, you know, net new people wanting to speak to Cassette. So I feel that it brings me a lot of energy because I'm literally learning more now because you have more inbound people bringing new things to talk about, to showcase, to talk, to, to explore for collaboration. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit, check. Sunscreen, check. Phone charger, check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I love that. I love that. Yeah, even looking at entrepreneurs who maybe feel outcast and a bit strange because a lot of them are a bit, you know, we on are the strange. edge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's genius. It reminds me a bit of like, like Gary Vaynerchuk, who again, entrepreneur, right? Son of, you know, amazing parents, entrepreneurial parents who, again, entrepreneur churned creative agency, right? And so it's like yeah. that affinity and that connection, brands are connected to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, the entrepreneurs are a tiny percent of the population. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty bizarre choice of things to do. Who chooses discomfort permanently? The failure rate on entrepreneurship is 90%. That doesn't change. Many of us go at it again and again. You keep building things. It's just a different headspace. And I just find that when you can bring that level of get something done, make it real, 
it's net new and not being afraid, when you can bring that to big brands, I think they appreciate this infusion of energy. Yeah. And, you know, you get to bring insights, but to test it out and roll it out with a much larger footprint, I think it's satisfying on both sides. Do you feel the pressure of your role and impact being in the C-suite of a company? And for young, maybe Black and diverse, you know, Indigenous people of color who are looking at being like, man, I could be in the C-suite. Look at Sabah's in the C-suite. I'm going to be there. It's not pressure. Yeah. But you realize that you have a dual role to play. So when we talk about the impact on high school students, we've had roomfuls of high school students come here through part of our outreach program and they walk out of here pumped because I can speak to them very directly in terms of here's what you get to do with creativity. Hmm. Here's what you get to do at a professional level. Make no mistake, you've got to be top of your game, but I can talk to you about different paths there. So some of the questions that came up in the last high school session one person said, oh, I like to do 3D animation, or I'm a writer, or I do comic books. And I said, it's all about unique combinations. What you do individually well, and who you collaborate, and who you collaborate with, come together to create something net new. So it really doesn't matter what your background is. As long as you learn how to make it work in this context of marketing. It's not art, it's marketing. And once you decide that that's where you want to be, your unique combination is what's going to keep you from being generic. This high school program, tell me about that. Is that a cassette initiative, something you initiated, or has it been around a while? Already in place. And so I was invited, it was soon after I started, so I got invited to come and speak to that first cohort of students. And it's something that is part of the outreach, but I think it's really smart in terms of a long creative funnel. Someone has to know that they can do something with their creativity. And this is one of many kinds of places that you could land. And if we can bring in that diverse range of creativity three years from now, four years from now, six years from now, seven years from now, you really can start that pipeline much earlier than, you know, college and university graduates. And it's not just the creative people. I just spoke to someone who is... He's doing his MBA and his JD and his law degree at the same time. And he saw that I had done an executive MBA. I did an executive MBA 10 years after. And so he said, hey, I'm in law in an MBA program, but I'm very interested in making sure that I don't get locked into something narrow. And I said, oh, yeah, that's what you get to do. You get to be a little bit odd. You come in with a different kind of hard discipline, but combine it in creativity. So the unique combination discussion I would have with a lawyer, someone in law school, is no different than I'd have with a designer or an art director. Still just about unique combinations. Cassette, it's incredible. I feel like you're scratching the surface and being there and what's happening, but uh, you've done so much already. But kind of, do you have anything hope for the future or something that you're looking forward to that's kind of on the horizon, maybe that you can talk about, yet you're allowed to talk about? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I have a couple of obsessions just in terms of, you know, the value of creativity. I think creativity is more valuable than anything else. Whether it's a scientist or an art director, it's really about creation of net new value. And I can think about it in creative terms and I can think about it in business terms. So I said creativity everywhere and the access I have to the data team, the growth team, the strategy team, I've literally inserted changes 
and ways of thinking and ways of collaborating that they get excited. They're like, oh, we've never had a chief creative officer speak to us at the start of a project. So that's becoming normal. It's also becoming normal to go laterally. So me spending time in Quebec City or Montreal and being bilingual and listening, sometimes it's important to listen to a meeting in French because I'll hear different things just in terms of the colloquial way someone might explain something that makes me understand something at a more subtle level. Because, you know, when you think of that idea of code switching, if you had to switch to another language all the time, something is getting lost in the mix. So, you know, I'm, I'm really keen on getting my full French capability back in order to not miss anything just in terms of subtlety. And then sometimes say, you know, this has already happened. I'll say, hey, do you know that so-and-so in the Montreal office has done a similar but different thing? And there are people now who have never spoken to each other until I realized that they should. And they're creating their own unique combination. So there's now much more lateral collaboration across the country, which I think helps our national clients really well. Yeah. And you're all downloading Duolingo. Keep up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever, whatever device helps you. You know what it is? Because I grew up in Montreal, if I listen... I have to concentrate more when I'm listening to someone speaking in French. But I think I, at this point, I'm at 95%. I'll understand everything. And if it's okay for me to respond in English because it's faster, but at least I'm understanding 95% of what's being said and being able to just respond. So I love some of the meetings where someone will speak in French the whole time and I'll speak in English the whole time and nothing, we don't miss a beat. It's just the normal flow of how the conversation works. That's incredible. Could you do this interview in French with our French host? It'd be too hard. Too hard, okay. It'd be yeah. too hard because I'm not quick on my vocabulary the way I used to be. So, but, you know, six months from now, I can't imagine not doing an interview in French. So I'll get it back. Come back six months, we'll book a time. Antoine, yeah, he's yeah. out of Montreal. He's amazing. <laughs> and so, yeah, every month or two, we have a full French episode. Okay. Yeah, that'd be amazing. You ready for the rapid fire round? Sure. Let's do this. Here we go. What was your first ever job? I built a t-shirt company. Yes. So my first ever job, I didn't want to get a summer job. And I went and bought blank t-shirts and I hand painted them and sold them in old Montreal. And I remember sometimes I would sell out by two or three in the afternoon and I'd have the rest of the day off. And I remember thinking, this is the best. <laughs> Go home and paint, sell it as fast as I can. And I don't think I made any less money than my peers. So I remember being convinced that this was the way to go. I could run my own schedule, sit outside, chat with people, and create. You were bit by the entrepreneurial bug. That was the... Very early. It's amazing. Uh, night owl or early bird? Night owl, by far. Cat or dog person? Neither. I'm a non-pet person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I've got two kids to manage. I'm like, take care of a pet on top of that. It's not going to yeah. happen. How old are your children? How old are the kids? 15 and 16. Okay, amazing, amazing. And I'm a single parent, so I'm like, no, this, there's a lot to handle. <laughs> yes. I just spent uh, my son, I took my 16-year-old son to a basketball tournament where I was one of the chaperones and was like eyes open to this new world of what they do in, on trips nowadays. What was the first thing you ever marketed? Because I was doing t-shirts. Yeah. I ended up getting commissions to do other t-shirts that, so I remember doing one for 
Roots Canada. Yeah. And it was a t-shirt for the Montreal Jazz Festival. Oh, wow. So that was being sold in stores and I had, you know, so that was a sort of, I was working for Roots as a sort of part-time job and then designed this piece of merchandise that was being sold during jazz festivals. So that was probably the first thing that was created where I was literally seeing the marketing context and thinking about the display and the merchandising and presentation of that. So that would probably be the first one. And then um, in terms of as a designer, once I started, you know, working on design projects, I think the very first thing I had to design was for a can of 7-Up. Again, it was all Generation X, Generation X, and they were thinking about what do we do differently for a soft drink. So I got to work on 7-Up with a, a packaging design firm, and that brought a whole bunch of other interesting projects like um, the hockey stick. How do you design the graphics on a hockey stick? You know, those were amazing first projects, just sort of their iconic objects. And how do you bring some sense of brand or personality or character to them yeah. in a very design context? Do you still have one of those shirts? The shirts, I do have one of the shirts. You do? Okay, good. I do have a couple of my first t-shirt designs sitting. And my kids look at them and they're like, <laughs> side-eye me on those. But those are my first humble offerings. Amazing. Dark or milk chocolate? Milk chocolate. Okay. Your favorite word right now? I would say it's cringe. No, you're cringe. I <laughs> because, like it. Just because that my kids will throw something at me like, uh, uh. <laughs> so, and just listen to them speak. There are lots of words that they use where I have to ask them what they mean. Yes. So. Courage. I like that. I like that. What's the last charity you supported financially or with your time and why? Uh, Sick Kids Hospital, partly because uh, I had one son who was treated by Sick Kids Hospital for several years. And I think about that organization as a creative institution Yeah. in terms of what those doctors and scientists do to solve a problem. So that was the last, yeah, every now and then that's where I'll make a donation. It's amazing. Uh, a movie that you just love, you could watch over and over and over again. I saw Lord of the Rings again last night mm-hmm. with a live orchestra. Oh, and I amazing. forgot how good it was, but it felt differently. So yeah. that that strikes me. But the movie that I could watch over and over again, yeah, is a Wong Kar Wai film called Twenty Forty Six. Okay, and. It was the first time I saw a movie and said, that is a work of art. Hmm. That's beautiful. That's great. Superpower. If you could pick one, what would it be? Not intimidated by a blank page. Yeah. And if you throw any combination of things in front of me, I will stitch it together into something. (laughs) That's great. Um, App on your phone you can't live without. Libby. The audiobook app. Can't live without it. Partly because I don't listen to podcasts as much as I listen to audiobooks because someone has edited and structured something into a story. And so I find if I have to be efficient with my time, I will rely on that app to bring me something. I love that app. It's free because we're we're library members, I guess. We have our library card. It's amazing. Talking to Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell. Have you listened to that audiobook? I haven't. 
It's the first enhanced audiobook I ever listened to where he took like clips, like radio clips and TV clips and interviews and put it into a, an existing audiobook, like a book book. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, if you get the chance. Favorite children's book? Hmm. I would probably say Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. Partly because it's interesting to see how kids get into the zone about being a wild thing. And that to me is about creativity. Love that. It's amazing. Best thing you ever bought for under $10? Lip balm. Yeah, come on. There we go. What's the most important thing you ever changed your mind about? It was difficult to move from London back to Toronto. Mm -hmm. Because when I left Toronto, I said I would never come back. It was just this thing about progression, keep moving forward and go somewhere else in the world. But now that I've been in Toronto, again, for another, I think another 11 or 12 years now, I truly believe it's the city in North America with absolutely the most potential. Hmm. I don't think another city in North America has the combination between scale, yeah. education, civility, diversity. And I think if Toronto keeps looking ahead, I'm super excited about what you can drive out of Toronto as part of Canada also yeah. playing a role in the world. Yeah. Hundred percent. I've blown away. I've been going to Toronto Metropolitan U. They've got these incredible programs they've birthed, like the Diversity Institute, uh, Magnet, uh, Future Skills Center. Like the stuff they're doing out of there blows my mind. It's uh, yeah. like world class stuff. Yeah, yeah. Business or marketing book that you'd recommend? I tend not to read business or marketing books, and that's because it is easier for me to come up with something new. Yeah from reading something very different. So the last book that I read, it's a book, first book by Werner Herzog, the cinematographer, but it's about a Japanese soldier who didn't know that the war was over. And so was defending an island in the Philippines by himself for 29 years. And why is that a business book? Right now I'm thinking about characters, narrative continuity, and it was told in a, fictional historical style and so if i'm thinking about a character in the context of a spot or a brand or an interaction that brings more to me because continuity and marketing is one of the most contemporary things that i need to be able to do so those reads on stories does more for me in business than anything else that's amazing where can people find and follow you online? Where do you spend your time? Find or follow me online? I don't think they can. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. Um, because I built so much of this last chunk of my career in social media. And now on my mind is this notion around privacy. Yeah. That is a thing that I'm trying to tackle. Know how all of us as consumers don't like to be creeped or feel like we're being followed? Like I no longer post pics of my own kids online because at some point I said, you know what? I don't like where any of this is going. So I engage online now in a much more personal space. Yeah, I think people can find things that I've said or been interviewed by on LinkedIn. That still feels pretty open and accessible. So that's probably the best way that you can bump into what I'm seeing, thinking, or hearing about and me engaged in these kinds of discussions. Amazing. And we'll put links to your projects 
in the the show notes as well. If people want to check out those Mm -hmm. uh, amazing resources, Uh, anything else you want to leave with listeners and viewers? Really, a lot of my mind is um, we have a, a unique creative opportunity right now because we've all been through something that most people never do. We've been through an existential crisis in terms of what happened in a pandemic. And we learned some good and bad things about our society. People had fear for their family that really only refugees or people in wartime do. And so it was so widely spread that I think as marketers and as people who tell stories or people who have built brands, who build brands, we actually have to think about solving a very different kind of problem. And I don't know if everyone has paused to think about how that affects our work. So it's on my mind in terms of pulling back and rethinking and reframing some of what we do in an era that's unexpectedly very different. Food for thought, for sure. Yeah, I don't, I, people are just trying to forget about it, let alone what is the impact and what is the implications, what's the ripple effect. Yeah. That's huge. Well, thank you for joining us this week on Marketing News Canada. Thanks for having me. It was great to sort of bat some ideas back and forth. This was Marketing News Canada. Thank you for joining us this week. And we'll see you next time on the show. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.